The Swiss and the children of Israel have this in common. They have always loved their mountains. We have our Matterhorn, our Eiger, the Jura, a view of Mont Blanc. They had their Zion, their Sinai, their Moriah, their Tabor, their Hermon and their Carmel. The Bible tells how precious things were discovered there on the mountaintop. Important truths revealed. Moments of mystery and majesty. Visions given. God encountered in power and in peace. No wonder then that Isaiah's vision of the kingdom of God takes him to the holy mountain. And he finds there all he ever wanted, all he ever needed. He finds hope in God's future. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Well, how great is that? How great is that? That's where I want to live, where wolves lie down with lambs and lions eat straw, where there is peace and plenty and everything is perfection, all hurts and hurting absent. This is the dream scenario as described by Isaiah. The dream we can all say yes to. Yes, this will do nicely. But is that all it is, a dream? A fantasy, mere fiction, this fabulous future? Is this the business we're in, believers, peddling pipe dreams and inhabiting cloud cuckoo land, wishful thinking till our brains burst? In truth, they weren't much into soft focus fantasy, the prophets of the Old Testament. They could hardly be earthed as they were in the harsh actualities of the real world as they encountered it and as it battered into them. Being a prophet of Israel was a hard shift. You were as likely as not to end up hunted down by an irate king, dropped down a well by an enraged queen, starved, endangered or killed. Little chance of having a quiet, sheltered, dreamy life. No, they tended to look at life through the bright, clear lens of brutal, stark, unforgiving, harsh reality. The cold light of day. For they saw it all. The failures of the nation, the ravages of war, the horrors of plague and famine, the grim inevitability of death, the smouldering ruins of once great cities. This was no cosy existence on the down-filled pillow of comfort and ease. It was all too real. Which meant they were totally grounded in their assessment of how things are, what people are like scathing in their rebuke of injustice as they saw it, and they saw it. They were bold in their challenge to unrestrained power, unremitting in their blazing searchlight exposure of the shady and grubby places that no one wanted to believe existed, still less wanted to look at or have stripped bare. So always asking the hard questions, looking out for the truth, however unpalatable and potentially dangerous, that truth might be. No, plenty of reality, a surfeit of reality. I find that ministers suffer a little bit from the widespread notion that we don't live in the real world and that our day is spent sipping tea out of cups with roses on the vicarage lawn as the bees dance lazily from flower to flower. There may be some clergy 
whose world is like that. But most I know have sleeves rolled up and are making their way constantly into the world of sadness, loss, anxiety, illness, problems, hurting people, messed up lives, tough places that we might prefer not to have to go to. So actually, when we talk, we do real, we know about real. So looking at their world with a clear, unflinching eye and not through the Vaseline-smeared lens of soft focus, the prophets of Israel were not much into placebos, comforting fables and reassuring falsehoods. They were all too sharp-eyed in their view of things, all too grounded in their assessment of where things stood, how people work, where it actually all goes wrong. And their verdict about the true nature of things, how things do stand, comes out of their unflinching realism. They do not suddenly become bunny-hugging, fluffy-minded wimps taking refuge in fairy tales. Naive they were not. So if, like Isaiah, they had a dream, it was a dream rooted and grounded in the reality of God. As they see it, the logic of his character sets the agenda for the future. The unchangeable God who holds the future in his hands. Make no mistake, the prophets remind us. God is Lord, and when that is the bottom line of reality, specific outcomes follow on from that. Game-changing truths apply because that is the case. Do you really think, the prophets ask incredulously, that it's all going to end in misery and defeat for love and truth and holiness and that the bad stuff is going to be the last thing the world knows? Do you imagine for a moment that the Lord's God's, Lord God's purposes will be thwarted for all eternity and that the darkness will overcome the light? What on earth about the character of God would lead you to consider the possibility that somehow everything will just fizzle out into nothingness? On God's holy mountain we will see how things end. Isaiah writes, For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. Before they call I will answer. While they are yet speaking I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The Bible gives us some glimpses of that ending in stories of God's other holy mountains. Mount Hermon's place in the poetry of the Old Testament is as a sign of the soothing balm of blessing that is enjoyed. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. 
a place of delight for those who live in a spirit of harmonious brotherhood, where enmity is forgotten and the cool, soothing blessedness of healing and reconciliation become the normal experience of all concerned. Not bitter, not fractious, not divided, like a sweet, soothing perfume on a hot and bothered forehead. And in the powerful poetic image, it trickles down the beard of the old priest Aaron in extravagant and uncontrollable blessing. Pretty good. We see even more of the story unfold as we recall Moses on the holy mountain of Sinai, shrouded in smoke. And the law is given, the Ten Commandments, written on tablets of stone. The exhausted, displaced, disjointed and occasionally disaffected people, rootless, uncertain, wondering what their future might be, come to the foot of the sacred Mount Sinai. On what foundations will their future be built? They pause to catch their breath on what is to be a long pilgrimage. There is time to consider who they were going to be, what would be the basis of their culture and their identity, what principles would underpin their nationhood, by what moral compass would they direct their destiny. And they wait at the foothills of the smoke-covered holy mountain, to find out by what rules they would play the game of life, what moral laws would govern their behaviour as a nation. Religion is about morality as well as theology, conduct as well as convictions. In here has to work out there. Theory has to be reflected in practice. What you believe has to be cashed out, fleshed out in how you live, how you organise your world. Otherwise it's just empty aspiration, or worse, hypocrisy. So there are laws, guidelines, ethical standards, moral codes to help maintain the moral equilibrium and the integrity of individual and community. No argument there. No nihilism and moral anarchy for us. Law, the importance of law, the sanctity of law, the truths, the sacred truths that make it a holy mountain and which affirm the importance of righteousness and integrity. Later, the prophet Elijah reminds us, and the hymn writer reinforces the story of a mountaintop experience where there was a furious wind that split the hills and shattered the rocks. But God was not in the wind. God was not in the wind. Indeed, it wasn't in the earth-shattering movement and noise of the hurricane, raw and fearsome in its power that God was revealed to the prophet Elijah on that mountaintop, but in the soft whisper of a voice. They could have stood there all day on that other mountaintop, those disciples of Jesus, trying to keep hold of the old safeties and certainties, but that was not their calling. Instead, they were to go out into that dangerous and unwelcoming world and tell the story of his victory, preach the gospel of his love with the power of his spirit burning like a fire within their hearts. It was strange, it was disturbing, it was beyond words as well it might have been. It was certainly inescapably the end of one part of the story and the beginning of another. They loved their mountains, did the people of Israel. 
things were discovered there, things revealed, moments of mystery and majesty, visions given, God encountered in power and in peace. No wonder then that Isaiah's vision of the kingdom of God takes him to the holy mountain. And he finds there all they ever wanted, all they ever needed. He found hope in God's future. And he found God, made his declaration of faith in God's tomorrow. A tomorrow that we dare to believe in, because we believe in him too. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.